0: The first part of karma is simply that things keep changing and that how we respond to them creates our future. What's in our hearts that motivates us creates how the future will be. For example, you can have a knife and cut someone. If you're a surgeon doing it and your motivation is to heal, you get a certain kind of karma. If you're a murderer using that knife, you get a very different kind of karma. It's not the action which creates what our future will be, but it's the intention in the heart and the mind. It is how our action is connected with us and where it comes from.
1: And welcome back to Jack Hornfield's Heart Wisdom Podcast, nestled so sweetly here in Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. I'm Ganesh, Jack's assistant, welcoming you to episode 221, A Life of Awareness. This episode is the second part to last week's episode, Awareness of Feelings, Mindfulness of Food, and takes place New Year's Day, 1988, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. This episode is all about the law of karma and how we can move past our karmas to live a life of awareness. Each of us have ingrained habits, not just the actions that we do, but the reactions to the various things that go on inside our head and the various feelings that we have inside of our body. And what Jack offers here is perspective to help us from getting caught In these habitual cycles which have ailed us for lifetimes and lifetimes. I feel we generally see our lives as this linear thing just kind of happening to us and oh stuck in this habit again. But if we take Jack's prescription from this episode on overcoming these habits and karmas by bringing them into awareness and discerning our feelings, our somatic body feelings from these stories in our mind which get us entangled and can create so much turmoil and um, frustration in our lives. If we can, in the moment, bring awareness in, we can, instead of just moving in this linear fashion in this circle, in this cycle, we can start to spiral up, we can take a step up. The awareness is what gives us a vote And that vote is a ticket to sculpting your own life, a life in mindful, loving awareness, a life that is dictated by wisdom and syntropy rather than entropy, a life of harmony. So that's what this episode offers and I hope you enjoy it. But before we dive in, I would like to invite you to Jack's Monday Night Dharma Talk, February 19th. That will be the next one. It is for spirit rock and it is online and pay what you can. And as I've said before, is truly the guru bead on the mala for all things Jack. This is where you can touch in with him and hear what he has going on in his heart about the world and any other lessons that he wants to share that week. You can go to jackcornfield.com and go to events to sign up and register for that. Otherwise, I implore you to sign up for the Jack Cornfield newsletter at jackhornfield.com/newsletter. There's always some really good deals going on in there for various courses that we have, as well as a lot of cool free offerings that we like to share as often as we can. And there we have it. This is episode 221, A Life of Awareness. I truly hope you enjoy this and it helps you past any difficult karmas or habits you may find yourself in my heart is with you and I'm sure everybody else who listens to this their heart is with you as well may you be happy may you be healthy may you help others through the authenticity of your own being and may your heart be smiling namaste to live a life
0: of awareness asks a lot of us And it asks that we know ourselves and know our feelings and know our hearts. When I work with people and couples come in for couples therapy, a lot of their struggle is that they don't know themselves what they're feeling. Or if they do, they don't know it well enough to bring it into awareness and share it with another person. They get stuffed. We're unconscious, we act out of habit, we're busy. And to become aware is to listen inside with integrity, to find our integrity to our actions, to our words, to our hearts. In his teaching, the Buddha put a great emphasis on feeling in the teaching of the cycle of dependent origination that I taught last year and may do again this winter, which is the cycle of us getting lost in our actions in an unconscious way. The Buddha said that the place where we can find freedom is in relation to our feelings. Generally, we are unconscious and the mind moves. There are all these reactions of mind When pleasant things arise, there's a pleasant taste. What do we do? We grasp to have more of that pleasure. When unpleasant things arise, quite unconsciously, the mind moves to resist it, to not feel it, to avoid it. And so we go through our life not very much in the present, trying to avoid a lot of things and trying to hold on to others even though they're changing, doing this dance, fearing certain things and grasping after others, And not so in touch with our hearts, with our bodies, with our breath, with this moment, with one another. We get caught like a puppet in that way. And the worldly winds keep changing. There are eight winds. Pleasure and pain. Fame and disrepute. Gain and loss. Praise and blame. Do you know them? That's what our life is. Praise and blame and blame and praise and pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure and gain and loss and fame and disrepute. It changes. And when we're not conscious and not aware, what we do is react to each of these wins as they change. I like that. I hate that. I want more of this. I want less of that. And we're caught like a puppet, kind of automatically. To understand the law of karma, the law of change, is to be able to live wisely. First of all, the first part of karma is simply that things keep changing and that how we respond to them creates our future. What's in our hearts that motivates us creates how the future will be. For example, you can have a knife and cut someone. If you're a surgeon doing it and your motivation is to heal, you get a certain kind of karma. If you're a murderer using that knife, you get a very different kind of karma. It's not the action which creates what our future will be, but it's the intention in the heart and the mind. It is how our action is connected with us and where it comes from. All the peculiar questions people ask about karma, well, what if you killed, killed somebody in order to save a whole lot of other people? Would that be good or bad karma? It would be what's called mixed karma, right? But what really matters is, what is your intention to do it? Do you think you could do that out of pure compassion? Or would there be hatred and aversion or fear in it? Because the states from which we act are what color our action and create the world around us. Yet we act so much out of habit. In Buddhist tradition, again, it's said that the moment of death is a very significant one because it cre- it's a moment that creates what may happen afterward. And there are four kinds of karma that are operative in the moment of death. If you want to learn a little Buddhist psychology tonight, they're called weighty, proximate, habitual, and random karma. Weighty karma means... You did some really big deed in your life, like you killed somebody or maybe even you killed a relative or someone very close to you, or that's weighty bad karma. Or you had some very powerful awakening or enlightenment or, or some, some deep realization that came, that's weighty positive karma. And those things are so powerful that they tend to overshadow anything else at the moment of death then if that doesn't operate, the second one is proximate karma, which is to say that karma of what is going on, what's associated at that particular time. What are the circumstances? What's the, what's the uh, nearest uh, thing that's happened? So if you had a good day or a bad day and you're not very mindful, that will influence your death moment a lot what's around that time. The third is habitual karma, and this is the one that operates most frequently. What's your mental habit? If your habit is to be loving, that's likely to happen when you're dying. If your habit is to be angry, that's likely to happen. If your habit is to be fearful, that's likely to happen. If your habit is to be able to uh, move with change gracefully, that's likely to happen. And then the last is called random karma. If none of these are operating, that it's just one karmic moment out of your, your storehouse. The image, the metaphor that's used is of cows. This may help you. The Buddha used a lot of agricultural metaphors, but the metaphor is this. Weighty karma is like the bull. You open the gate and everybody moves out of the way and the bull goes through because he's the biggest guy in the pasture. Um, Proximate karma is whatever, when you open the gate, whatever cow is nearest to the gate goes through. That may be so. Habitual karma is whatever cow is used to leading, you know, because cows go in certain order as well. And so it's whatever cow is generally the one to go back to the barn. And random karma is if there isn't a big bull and there's no habitual cow and there isn't one cow particularly close to the gate, then whatever cow happens to be nearby will go through the gate first. But what's most striking about all of these kinds of karma is how much they talk about our habit. That what we do and what we become is based a lot on our habit, our conditioning. And what awareness is about is the possibility of waking up and not living so asleep, not living so much from habit. Where's my curmudgeon book here? George Bernard Shaw. The trouble with him is that he lacks the power of conversation, but not the power of speech. Um. George Bernard Shaw had many other things to say about such things. So much of our life is on automatic pilot if we haven't cultivated awareness, and yet we can do it. We can really do it. It's not that complicated to listen to our body and its needs, or the food, or the climate, or our hearts, or the people around us. But it takes some practice. There's an art to it, and that really is the art of awakening, the art of meditation. And so you sit, it's called practice because it's a place to practice being aware so that then you can live it more fully in your life. And you sit and you watch your reactions. You watch the movements of mind. You feel the feelings. And you sit and something pleasant arises and there's, oh boy, I want more of that. Something unpleasant, I hope I can get rid of that. The knee's hurting, let me move a little. Maybe I can get that to go away. Stretch a little, get my body to feel more comfortable and... All of a sudden you find that your sitting is turned into kind of a therapeutic massage and you try to get rid of all this stuff instead of just being aware. You watch the mind move. And in doing so, you learn this art of seeing what's here and feeling it without getting quite so caught in the habit of it. I remember doing a retreat where I was very, very still and I was paying attention to the moment of intention, the moment of wanting that would arise. And I was sitting there. I'd been sitting for a couple of hours, quite peaceful. And then I had to go to the bathroom. I had to go pee. So I was sitting in the, the uh, impulse rose: I have to get up and go to the bathroom. And I noticed it; I just noted wanting to pee, wanting to pee or whatever, just labeled it. And I watched it because I was very still. It came, it was there for a little bit. And then it disappeared. And so I continued to sit, sat for another half hour. So then it came again, noted it again, watched it for a while. And then I, because I was so still inside, it came and it went, there wasn't anything to do. I just watched it and it came, went. Then it came 15 minutes later. Then it came 10 minutes later. After it came a few more times, it was really clear it was time. And And it wasn't that I shouldn't have gotten up the first time at all. But simply, I'm, I'm using this to illustrate that you can sit and begin to learn to actually feel a whole range of feelings, hunger and love and desire and sorrow and loss and grief and, and the beautiful things, and really come in touch with them and know your heart and your feelings. And out of that awareness, there comes the possibility of some wisdom. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, usually it's like the kid in the candy store our mind. It's not very awake. It's pretty unconscious. But when you've trained it, it's more like sitting at the bottom of a mango tree and the wind comes along and the mangoes drop down and you're wise enough to know this is a good mango and that's a rotten one and that one has a worm in it and that's a really ripe, delicious one. Because you take the time to listen, you can begin to tell that which is skillful or that which is nourishing or that which which is alive for you. It actually brings in aliveness. Wisdom comes understanding, living wisely, comes through this cultivation of awareness. It's really pretty simple. Spiritual practice is not very complicated. It doesn't require a special costume. It doesn't require a lot of special rituals, although rituals can be very beautiful. It doesn't involve some exalted states of mind necessarily it's really knowing where we are and listening. And through that, wisdom comes. If we learn to pay attention and feel what's in us and, and understand through that attention what goes on in our hearts and our, our actions and our motivations. So I ask you some questions in your meditation or, or for, your, for your life if you want to. If you want to work with it, start to listen and see what motivates you most of the time when you speak. Is it communion? Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it wanting to share? Is it loneliness? Is it boredom? Is it nervousness? Is it fear? What is it? Just listen enough. What is there that motivates you as you eat or as you do your work? or as you interact with people around you, just begin to pay attention and listen. And listen as well. Pay attention to the eight worldly winds and see during this week or month or year, but take this week if you like. See if you don't notice because you look how quickly praise and blame and pleasure and pain and gain and loss change for you even in the course of a day or an hour, and then see how much it moves the mind around or whether you can also find a place that feels all those things, but instead of reacting to them, can be a bit more centered and respond from the heart rather than being caught up in reaction. To do that is to learn to let things go a bit, to not follow every habit, but to become a little stiller and a little more awake and a little more centered in your, in your heart and in your being. And you'll find if you do it, it makes for greater happiness in your own life. The people around you will appreciate it quite a bit, no doubt. And it might even have a salutary effect on the world beyond your smaller immunity. In the gospel story, where the apostles get trapped in that sudden and wild storm on the Sea of Galilee, there's a lesson for those who wish to find peace for the world today. When the waves first rose and the boat began to rock, the apostles worked hard and with hope in order to survive the storm raging around them. But then they lost heart and allowed the storm outside to come inside. It's easy to imagine the apostles as frantic, disconnected, out of control. In their desperation, they wake in a peaceful Jesus who questions their faith and calms the storm by projecting his inner stillness, his inner harmony, and his inner peace. Sometimes even we peacemakers are more like the apostles and have allowed the destruction and terror of the world around us to become a part of us. Too often, we worsen the situation by projecting our own fear or guilt or despair. What we might do instead is become like Jesus, to have that still center that nothing can disturb. In that way, we become true peacemakers Persons who project peace wherever we go. Any questions or thoughts or comments or whatever you like, please? Yeah. Did everybody hear the question? She said she's pretty good at identifying her feelings. But then they last a long time when she gets caught up in the content. This is a very useful question. Because the, the content which you talk about, one could also call the story, right? And the story, in some ways, is the thought rather than the feeling. When I said feelings don't last very long, I meant the emotion, the mood, and this physical sensation that come with it the story goes on for a long time. In fact, you will find that the story will go on as long as you want to play it. What's useful then, and you probably know this to some extent having practiced with it, so I'm not going to tell you anything new, is to begin to make a difference or to distinguish in your attention between the story and the feelings as they're felt as an emotion and as a, Sensation in the body. What's a common feeling for you? Sadness, and then a story comes with it. Actually, that's me. sadness isn't sadness I don't get stuck What's a hard one then? Where do you you get stuck in anger? Yeah, liking to be right for one thing helps with that. At least I I do. I don't know about you. All of us, and it's so, so uh huh. So there's. He did and she did and so forth. And then and there's the anger. If you can begin to pay attention to the feeling of the anger itself, what does it feel like in the body? What is it hot? Is there contraction? What does it do to the breath? If you can feel its quality in the mind, it's like a certain color dye in the water. It flavors it and maybe it's fiery or it, it It makes the mind jumpy or restless or just see what it does. If you can pay attention to that, you'll notice a lot of things you'll learn. One thing that would be helpful maybe would be to give it its name, angry or anger, anger, and just label it as long as it's there. If you get into the story of it, the story will go on for a long time. And when you notice in that moment, you realize, boy, I've been in the story at that moment say, okay, enough of the story for the moment. Let me feel it in the body and let me feel its quality. And when you do, one of the interesting things that happen with anger is you feel how unpleasant it is. The story is a little bit pleasant, actually, or can be, especially if you're right and they're wrong, which is almost always the case, right? There's some pleasure in that, some righteousness in it. But the actual experience of the anger is rarely pleasant. I'm not saying it's bad or you should even get rid of it. But what you find is that it's not so pleasant. And there comes in the attention to it an understanding of its pain. And sometimes through that, there's just a really natural letting go of it. I am seen for a sudden make it a little more think I like, you know, we are multiple. Other than your body? Beside feeling the sensations in your body? Have you ever experienced feeling a feeling that's not just the physical component of it? There's a kind of emotion that you can feel in the mind or the heart. Okay. Then feel it there as well. Not just physically. You might be sad. There's, you know, your face and eyes will feel the sadness or your heart might feel heavy. But also there's a whole flavor or quality to sadness itself. See if you can feel not just the physical sensations, but the the color or the flavor of it in some way. It's, It's useful in practice to do a little bit of reflecting of what of the different mind movements, of what are the different changing conditions are the ones that most catch you up. Where are the places you most get lost? For you, perhaps it's anger for someone else, it might be a different state. It might be fear, or it might be uh, sadness, or it might be hunger, or whatever. And that becomes a very interesting place to work in your practice. It's a place that a great deal of freedom can be found, but it's hard. It means you really have to look. And What is it like in the body? What is the quality like? And, and working with labels or naming it can be very helpful in that process. Please. Speaking of uh, the four lines that you then the four days later... Yeah. ...and dress a little bit on how it was to very sudden get either that accident or some type attack. It takes one whole how many years. Well, all I can say, I, I, I don't really know, but I, I can refer just to the moments of experience I've had where I thought I might die, like when the car was going off the road and I thought whoops, this is it, you know? And most people have had certain moments like that. Having had those moments arise since being a monk and doing a lot of years of meditation practice, I've noticed that they are quite different than the moments before that practice. And now when that starts to happen, there's this a quality that comes more often of, wow, here we go, it's time to let go, time to really just be open. And that wasn't my reaction before. It used to be much more of fear or panic or regret and so forth. So that I'm not sure that the question of sudden or long, drawn out death is so critical. I think what's more useful is how we have learned to be aware. always come, mommy. The of that sudden day. I don't think it happens that quickly doesn't doesn't appear to no I, I mean for one thing even if you have a heart attack you you're still alive physically even for some minutes it's not it's not instantaneous but even if it's an accident and it's instantaneous i don't know i, I just have such a sense of process uh uh Truthfully, I can't answer you. I can just speak from my experience. But what's important to know when we talk about questions of death is that in truth, we're dying all the time. You go to sleep and you die and you wake up and it's a new day. You have a new relationship and it's born. It ends and it dies. And when you sit and pay attention, each breath, each moment, each feeling is born and it dies. You're constantly changing. And the question is, how aware can we be or mindful of this process of birth and death and all the changes that come with it, the pleasant and the painful and the gain and the loss? Do, are we constantly reacting, or is there a place of freedom, a place of compassion, a place of openness that we've begun to nourish in ourselves? And that's what meditation practice can do. Anyone else, please. Ah. I said they pass. I didn't say they won't come back. And not only that, sometimes they can pass away and something worse will come. You're sitting there and you feel afraid and you're willing to pay attention to it and you note fear, fear, and you try to make your peace with fear. Fear, fear, maybe six, eight, ten times and you're a little scared. And then the fear goes away and you realize instead there's terror and it's worse. It's not You're not afraid anymore. You're terrified. And there's a whole new feeling and a new set of thoughts that go with it. So it can, get, it can go all different directions. But what happens as you pay attention, even in that, is you start to feel it as a very alive, dynamic process rather than you're stuck in it. Even when fear turns to terror, turns to depression, turns to anger, turns back to fear again or whatever, if that's the sequence you observe, If you really pay attention, you feel its very aliveness. And in that, it releases you from being caught in just one part of it It starts to open you up. And you start to relate to it, again, with some wisdom. Peace. Well, you said when you get down to the bottom of things, they'll go away. What do you often find? Yeah, what kind of things do you... what kind of things do you find down there as the causes for those feelings? Fear of the unknown, being out of control or not knowing. Uh-huh. It's a useful question. Sometimes it's, it's really helpful to reflect. In meditation, there's a whole class of reflective meditations. If something's coming and it repeats itself a number of times, it's a signal that something needs attention. And then you can reflect. And sometimes in doing so, you're able to let go of it that's very skillful. However, sometimes you can reflect and know damn well the cause of it. He did that and or she did that and I know why I'm sad or angry or whatever. And you know it, at least on, on one level, you know it pretty well, but it still comes anyway. And in some ways that will often repeat a grieving or a loss or injustice or something like that may repeat in part because it just hasn't been felt enough, it hasn't been accepted in a deep and full, so your question is useful, and sometimes that reflection is helpful. Oh so you're not saying no you if it repeats often, you can do some reflection, or you can ask yourself this question, "What have I not accepted? If you want to ask yourself a good question in in changing in your experience, what is it that's true? That's just a fact that I have not accepted. And very often the answer will show itself right away. It was true. <laughs> and with a poem from Kabir and then a few announcements, actually from Rumi, from The Ruins of the Heart. Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. It all comes together pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, birth and death. Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there is no death worse than expectancy. Set your heart on hard cash. If you are not counterfeit, and listen to my advice, if you are not a slave of habit and other such things. Don't falter on the horse of the body. Go lighter on your feet. Let go of your worries and become completely clear-hearted like the face of a mirror that contains no images. When it's empty of forms, all the forms are contained within it. If the coarseness of metal can be polished to a mirror-like finish, what polishing does the mirror of the heart require? If you want a clear mirror, behold yourself. When it's empty of forms, all forms are contained within it. Behold yourself and see the wondrous truth which the mirror reflects.